Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. If you would stand for our scripture reading today, it comes from Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13. page uh, 1029, if you want to follow along. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Luke tells us Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit when he came out of the waters of his baptism. And he goes on to say that right after his baptism, he was immediately led by the Spirit of God out into the emptiness and the barrenness of the Judean wilderness. And the Judean wilderness is an area east of Jerusalem, and it kind of heads toward the Dead Sea and for various Meteorological reasons, it is an area that gets very little rain, it's arid, it's dry, and so on. There's a couple of pictures on the screen that are actually taken of the Judean wilderness, and you can get a sense as you look at it of how barren it is, how intimidating it would be to wander out into that and spend 40 days there. It's uneven ground, it's hills, it's caves, it's crevices, and undoubtedly wild animals of many kinds. And Jesus spent, we are told, over a month out in this wilderness praying and communing with God. And he did all this right on the front end of his ministry, before his public ministry was about to begin. It's kind of interesting. There's a monastery there today called St. George's Monastery. It's been there for a long time. It sits built right into the cliffs of this wilderness. It's kind of a daunting thing to look at. You feel like if you lean too far over your soup, you'll knock the whole thing down and it'll crash into the ravine. But uh, monks for centuries have gone to this Judean wilderness and have spent, in some cases, their whole lives in solitude and in silence and in prayer, seeking to commune with God uh, in a way that Jesus did when he was in the Judean wilderness. Over the 40 days and nights, Jesus was out there. Luke tells us specifically he experienced temptation throughout the period of time. A barrage of temptation, not just 
the three specific ones that are mentioned. But Luke says for 40 days, Jesus fasted from food and he was tempted. Just a sidebar in the New Testament, when we see the word tempted or temptation, it's kind of synonymous with the word test or testing. So you can use whichever one you prefer. But the devil, in some fashion or form, was at work testing or tempting Jesus while he was out in the wilderness for 40 days. And near the end of those 40 days, Jesus was hungry. He was vulnerable, we might say. And the devil turned up the heat of his temptations in three specific ways. He tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread and satisfy his hunger. He tempted Jesus, secondly, with a shortcut to power. You can rule over all if you're loyal to me, and if you bow down and if you worship me. And then lastly, he tempted Jesus to question God's faithfulness and question God's goodness. And he did this in a very sneaky and underhanded way. The devil actually quotes the Bible to Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 91. And he says to Jesus, based on what it says in Psalm 91, the devil says, throw yourself off this high tower because... God promises to protect you. See, it's right here in Psalm 91. He says nothing will harm you. So go ahead, Jesus. Prove that he's right and prove that he is trustworthy. Jump off this building and God will take care of you. And these temptations were an actual event in the life of Christ. And an interesting part of this story, when you step back and think of it, is that Jesus is the only witness to what happened. Nobody else was there. He was out in the wilderness all by himself, and it is there that the devil came and tempted him. So at some point after his ministry had begun, perhaps while sitting around a fire one night, he told his disciples this story. And it's worthwhile to think about why he might have done that, what point he was trying to make, the the things he was trying to emphasize in relaying to them this story. And it was a story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke included in their Gospels. A couple of weeks ago, we began our Lenten series where we are considering some of the crucial events in the life of Jesus to give us a clear vision of who he was and a clear vision of what it means to live in his way or to live in the way, as we are calling this series. And today we're talking about temptation. Oh boy, sounds so fun. Temptation sounds so upbeat. Temptation. It sounds so encouraging and uplifting. Oscar Wilde has this great line. He said, I can resist everything except temptation. It's a good line. We all probably know what he meant. Temptation is enticement. Enticement to be unfaithful to God. Enticement, we might say, to elevate the self over God. To make the self God. At the risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to define temptation as replacing God and his agenda with me and my agenda. That's the temptation. To replace God and what he wants and his plan with me and what I want and my plan. And we're told here in Luke that Jesus experienced temptation in the wilderness and at other times in his life. And obviously you and I experience temptation on a regular basis. So to begin, I want to talk about the temptation when the topic is temptation. See, this is not a topic most people are anxious to interact with for obvious reasons. It exposes us when we wade into this. It exposes the hidden realities 
of who we really are. The subject of temptation brings us to the brink of our humanness where we stare into the realities of what actually goes on inside of us and sometimes outside of us. So it is really tempting when this subject comes up to brush it aside, to roll our eyes, to dismiss it, and to not give it the serious reflection that it warrants. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Julie and I had this incredible opportunity to go to Italy with Izzy's soccer team, and we traveled around with the team, and we saw all the sights in that incredible country. It's just an amazing trip. And every day we were in Italy, we were tempted with incredible food, for one thing. I mean, I had a piece of lasagna there that I promise you will be served in heaven. It was just extraordinary. We were tempted with chocolate, and we were tempted with gelato, as you know from if you know anything about Italy. We got back last Sunday night. We took a couple days to adjust to the time change. And then I started thinking about this morning, and I saw the topic, and the topic was temptation. And just to be straight with you, I kind of rolled my eyes. You know, great. Been gone a little bit. Get to come back talk about this light subject to the group. Temptation is a topic we can dismiss. We can brush aside. We can roll our eyes at. Oh, boy, here we go again. Going to get all serious and intense. And it's because when we talk about temptation, we aren't very far from thinking about our own specific temptations we face. But I hope we hang in there today as we make our way through this. There's another temptation that arises when we start talking about temptation, and that is this. It is tempting to think that temptation primarily has to do with naughty things we're supposed to avoid. Think about it. The word temptation. Just when you say the word, when I say the word, it probably sets off a series of words or ideas in your mind. Words like lust, sex, alcohol, swearing, cheating, lying, watching too much TV, eating too much gelato, whatever it is. We think of the naughty behaviors we're supposed to avoid. And I'm not downplaying the seriousness of sinful behavior and the ongoing temptation we experience to engage in those behaviors, but the Bible does not primarily define or describe temptation or sin in terms of behaviors to avoid. And this is crucially important. There's something deeper behind naughty behavior. There's something going on deep in the soul that is manifesting through, we'll call it, the bad behavior. But it's a tremendous mistake to simply try to manage the bad behavior without dealing with the underlying source of such behavior. See, the primary temptation I experience is the temptation to replace God and his agenda with me and with my agenda. And virtually every enticement to do something that might be called wrong or naughty or whatever, is ultimately, at its core, a temptation to replace God and his agenda with me and my agenda. See, the core issue behind all these enticements to act badly is the self and the self's desire to be God, the self's desire to be in control, the self's desire to medicate pain, the self's desire to be in charge. See, I want to be king, and that is the greatest temptation that I face, and I face it every single day. 
I want to be king. I want to be in charge and I want everyone and everything, including God, to bow at my feet and be in my service. I want the world I live in to cooperate with what I want and with what I think. And when it does, all is well. And when it doesn't, I react to that. And this impulse runs in all of our blood. Our earthly nature, as the Apostle Paul calls it, is driven by the interests of the self. And that is why the ongoing process of spiritual growth is putting to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. It's not just behavior management. Scholars place a great deal of significance on the gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation, not because it serves as, as an example for how we can deal with our own temptations. It's not there primarily so we can say, well, he was tempted in this, and I'm tempted in that, and he did this in response, so I'll do that in response. Certainly we can do that, but that's not why it's there, and that's not why scholars are fascinated by it. Scholars find the significance in the parallel between Jesus' temptation over here and the temptation of Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, the devil comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he tempts them by saying this, God knows when you eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, your eyes will be opened, and here's the key phrase, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the phrase, you will be like God. There's something deep in the self that craves to be like God. In fact, it craves to be God. And as we know, when this test came to Adam and Eve, they failed. God had a plan, but they replaced his plan with their own plan. God had an idea of how to live abundantly and well, but they replaced his plan with their plan. God didn't know best. They did. So they did what they wanted to do. They failed. They took a shortcut. And all sorts of chaos and turmoil and curse broke loose that continues to infect the human soul and planet Earth to this very day. When you look around and see chaos and see all of the corruption and the noise and the heartache, a vast majority of it is traced back to this idea that human beings have had it in their blood since they were created, that they want to do it on their own. Self. The self's desire to be God is a powerful force to reckon with in life and in relationships. It constantly demands its rights and privileges and preferences. The self rears its head at unexpected times and in unexpected ways because the self wants to be in control. The self wants to call the shots. We just have to say this. The self, our self, believes it knows better than anyone else, and indeed it even knows better than God how to live well and abundantly. So the self wants to be in charge. The self wants what it wants when it wants it. And not a single one of us is immune to this. The Bible calls it the flesh or the old self or the earthly nature. The self makes demands. It fights for control every day. And most of us can attest it frequently wins. See, just to say it this way, I possess Olympic level skill at being about me. And here's the funny thing. I've never trained for this, at least not purposefully. I've been training my whole life, but I've never done it purposefully. It's all been very natural. 
I'm really good at prioritizing me, making something about me, orienting my thoughts around me, orienting the way I see the world around protection of me, and on and on we could go. And this exaltation of the self is a direct consequence of sin. And everything is infected by it. Relationships are infected by it. Perceptions I have or you have are infected by this fascination and fixation with self. Choices we make or don't make are affected and infected by this obsession with self. The self is in fact so powerful, it will try to reshape and remake God in its own image. And this is one of the phenomena we are dealing with in life now. Christians and those who aren't are creating God in their own image. And that's what the self will do. That's how powerful the self is. The self will create God in its image. So we make God to be a particular way. We make him to do particular things. We make him to care about this, but he doesn't care about that. We make him to endorse this, but condemn that. The self makes God a means to fulfilling the self's desired ends. Anne Lamott wrote and put it this way. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. I mean, just think about the power of that. We redesign him because he's not quite good enough. So we make him to be what we want him to be, what we need him to be, what we think he is, and it just so happens the things we do are all he signs off on. The things we don't do, he's not interested in. And what it all comes back to is we've made God in our own image. So the root issue behind the temptation to do naughty things, however long it takes to get to it, the root issue is the self. Adam and Eve failed their test, but then Jesus comes along and passes his. He resists the temptation. And in doing so, he demonstrates his power over the forces of evil in this world. And this is why scholars emphasize this story. This is why scholars camp here and lift this up and talk about how important this is. It is the beginning of the end of evil. What we read in Luke 4 is the beginning of the end of evil because it is a demonstration of Jesus' power as God's Son to stand in sandals on this earth and defeat evil and defeat the devil and defeat all of his schemes. And when Jesus puts Satan in his place out in the Judean wilderness, more simply, when Jesus says no, it foreshadows the victory he will secure through his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension. And so a beautiful picture starts to arise out of this rather challenging and maybe even discouraging topic of temptation. And the picture is this. Jesus is present with people like you and people like me. Present with us. Helping us choose faithfulness to God in the midst of our trials and testings and temptations, helping us choose what is right and what is good and what is honorable to him, no matter what our circumstances may be, because he knows what it is like to be human. He knows what it is like to experience 
temptation. Sometimes people say, well, how can you say that? He had three temptations. Turn stones to bread, have all this power, and jump off a building. But remember what Luke says. While he was out in the desert for 40 days and nights, he was tempted by the devil. He knows what it is like to be alone in the wilderness, whatever the wilderness might look like at any given time. He knows what it is like to battle thoughts and ideas and wrestle with images and think about taking shortcuts here or there. He knows how hard that is when feet are made of dust. And this may be a a new concept for some of us to think of Jesus in such earthy ways. But it is an extension of the incarnation to say Jesus knows what it is like to face temptation and trial and suffering and testing. He knows what it is like. Say it this way. When God came to the earth, he actually came. When he dwelled among us, he actually did. When he walked this planet, he faced what you face. The temptations, the trials, the testings. So he knows what it is like to be made of dust and clay and deal with those things. And there's a couple of important verses that drive this home. They're both in the book of Hebrews. They're both going to be on the screens. The first is Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 through 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, incarnation, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, or if you prefer, when he was tested, He's able to help those who are being tempted or who are being tested. The other one's in Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you just listen to what that's all saying, it's saying when we're right on the brink and the enticement is right in front of us doing this to us, we follow a Savior and a Lord who has stood in those shoes and right there in those moments can help. Now, it is important to recognize that the temptation of Jesus was just that. It is his temptation given who he was. And this is not time to delve into all the particulars of the devil and how he works and what he is, but suffice it to say the devil is not a generalist. He handcrafts temptation based on the person. So he knows what makes us tick. He knows our particular weaknesses. He knows your vulnerabilities. 
He knows your past, the journey you've walked. He knows the present. He knows what sets you off. He knows what you're drawn to. He knows all that. And he will handcraft temptation based on the person. He tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread and to rule over kingdoms and jump off buildings because he knew Jesus was uniquely powerful. And he could do those kinds of things, but I can't do those things. So I am not particularly enticed to use my power to turn stones into sandwiches. So here's what I'd like for us to do in the remainder of our time. And this is where this kind of wanders a little deeper into our own experience. If you look up on the screen, there's an artist's rendition there of Jesus' temptation, of the very story we have been talking about. And as you look at that picture, you can see a few things that are worth noting. One is that this shrouded uh, figure that we'll call the devil has his hand extended. For what reason? To say, jump off this cliff maybe, or to say, look out upon this vast uh, wilderness and all the kingdoms of the earth that belong to me. They can all be yours. Jesus is turned away. His hands appear to be in some sort of prayerful posture. He does not seem to be fighting it, but of course we can't get inside of his head and read his mind. But this picture depicts the battle. It depicts the battleground of one's thoughts, the enticement. You can have all this. This can be yours. You can feel this for a few seconds if you'll only turn in the direction at which I'm beckoning. It might make us feel better to think of Jesus as one who just skipped over the real struggle associated with temptation. It might make us feel better to think, well, he certainly wasn't really tempted. I mean, that's the word they used. But that can't possibly be true. He wasn't really tempted to it. So he's different than us because every time he was tempted, he just said, nope, nope, nope. Is that what happened? Maybe. But the Bible says he knows enough to help us in our time of need. And there are as many unique temptations being faced by those in this room as there are people in this room. And part of the reason for that, not to give the devil all the credit in the world, but part of the reason for that is because he hand-makes and hand-crafts temptations to trip us in ways he knows will trip us. So we could go a million directions and talk about all these different things that are temptations for us to face, but you have your journey, and much of what I'm going to say for the remainder, you may want to simply apply it into whatever the particular temptation is you happen to face. But I would like to talk about a few temptations Christ followers face in 2019, given our situation, given our circumstances, in this culture, in this town, and in this community. And there are dozens we could talk about. The ones I have chosen are not typically included in the naughty category, so they may seem a little bit different. But these are, I believe, daily temptations we face to replace God and His agenda with me and my agenda. And the first is the temptation to entitlement. The news has been filled lately with this college admission scandal. You may have read about it where... The rich bribed various college officials and various schools to get their kids into an elite college. It's a big mess, reeks of entitlement. And it's easy to stand back from all this, shake our heads at the wealthy involved in this scam and, you know, make all sorts of negative statements about them. But I believe we, and when I say we, I mean right here, 
living in this town and in the surrounding area, we face the temptation of entitlement every single day. Think of entitlement as getting what we want when we want it. Or maybe it's easier to think of entitlement in terms of how we respond when we don't get what we want or when the world doesn't cooperate. See, the self wants what it wants when it wants it. And you know you're dealing with entitlement when we don't get what we want and then the reaction, the volcanic reaction of one kind or another begins. I think entitlement is a real temptation that most of us deal with on a regular basis, particularly if we live in a place like Folsom, because we're used to getting what we want in little ways. For example, church ends, you go down to Rayleigh's, and you walk in the store, and you get your stuff, you get an apple and a juice box, and you go to the line, and there's no line that's got less than nine people in it. And you're looking around, and your thoughts go something like this. Who's running this joint? How come they've got, in the prime of the afternoon, they've only got two people checking us out, so we have to stand in these lines of nine people. Let me get face-to-face with the person running this. I don't have time to stand in this line. Or you do what you should never do. You walk up and you do this shortest line. And then you go to it, and you get in it, and all of a sudden the person ahead of you, they want their receipt audited by Price Waterhouse. So they're going to stand there forever, and you pay the price because you tried to cheat and take the short line, and then the long lines are going like this. Or you stand in the short line, but no line moves slower than the one you're in. It's how it always is. It's like the grocery gods are looking down on you negatively. Little ways, entitlement, and in big ways. I mean, let's just be straight here. I'm not saying that this is, you know, some big raging sin, but some of the ways we are entitled is we work to get our kids into the elementary school we want them to attend because we won't want them to, we don't want them to attend these other ones because they're not as good as this one. And we feel entitled to get that arranged. We want the world to cooperate and we feel it's our right that it cooperate. I mentioned this trip to Italy and on our way back, We went through the Amsterdam airport to get our connection from Amsterdam to San Francisco. I'd never been in the Amsterdam airport, but it's about the size of the city of Folsom. I mean, just massive. We walked 20 minutes and felt like I was on a treadmill. There's just getting nowhere. Finally came up to this customs line. And this line, you know, they do it like this, so you don't really know how long it is. But if you just stretched it out, it'd go from here to Folsom Middle School. It's absolutely mind-boggling. So you're standing in this line, you realize this is going to take an hour or more to get through this. And right away, I started just looking around, and you can sense instantly how countless people just would not accept this. I mean, they were the exception. I recognize you have to make sure your country's safe, but I'm not a problem. You should just let me go through, was kind of the mindset. They didn't need to wait in line, and they were too important for such pedestrian activities. So all the bartering begins. It's happening all around. There's attendants that are making sure you don't cross those barriers and the bartering. You know, I've got uh, my leg hurts, and I can't really stand here this long. There's arguing going on. Every now and then the attendant would say, if your plane is boarding at 930, come up here. We'll let you go through. And I heard people, they'd walk up there, and the attendant would go, "Uh, your plane boards at 130. Oh, I thought it said 9.30. It's all this kind of stuff. All these games get played. (laughs) 
What we did is we had Julie distract the attendant, and I just lifted up the thing and went through. It wasn't my idea. It was her idea. I mean, I wouldn't have done it, but the Julie made me do it. I'm kidding. We didn't do that. I just threw that in there. But this whole thing was a giant window into the soul of entitled humanity. So if you look on the screen, there's our picture again of Jesus and his temptation. And I want us to put ourselves in this picture several times as we get ready to wrap this up. And this time I want to think about this temptation to entitlement that you deal with and I deal with and will deal with this week. The temptation to elevate the self. The temptation to get what we think we deserve. The temptation to react inappropriately when we don't get what we want. The temptation to use money or power to get what we want. To think of that figure, that, that figure behind Jesus that's tempting us, to be tempting us, you get to have this. You should have this. You're entitled to have this. Now, Jesus dealt with every one of his temptations in Luke 4 by leaning into the truth of Scripture. He went in, actually, to Deuteronomy 6 through 8, and he brought forth Scripture passages, and every time the devil tempted him with something, he came back with a response that was right out of the Bible, right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. And so I want to suggest a Scripture for each of these modern temptations I'm going to mention. And if one of these temptations, entitlement or whichever one it is, particularly grabs you, I'd encourage you to write it down and then write down the reference to the verse and perhaps even take it with you this week and lean into it when the temptation arises. So the temptation for entitlement, we can combat that with Matthew 16:24, the words of Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. So this week, you're in a long wait in a line. Or you're about to pull into a parking spot and someone darts in front of you and takes it. You don't get what you want in some little way or big way. The world doesn't cooperate in some little way or big way. And instead of in the moment giving in to the temptation to entitlement, the words of Matthew 16, deny Self. Die to self, because this is the way of the disciple. Second common temptation in 2019 is anger. We live in a divided country that's obvious. What may not be as obvious is how anger has become so commonplace and normal. We think nothing of it. To the point where being angry is now, in some instances, a sign of actually caring about something. So some people think. And I don't want to get off on my well-worn, well-rode hobby horse, but anti-social media is a breeding ground for anger. Facebook, Twitter, all the rest encourages combat under the guise of conversation. We say things behind the protection of a screen we would never say if we were sitting across a table face-to-face with someone drinking coffee. We live in a time where anger is often seen as a sign of righteousness and of caring about an issue. And I just want to say out loud, that is completely untrue. 
Cultural observers and Christian thinkers and scholars are increasingly writing about the prevalence of anger in our culture. People who have absolutely no connection with God are writing long articles in very respected magazines about the dangers of anger and the prevalence of anger. And they're talking about what this reveals about who we are becoming individually and as a society. And here's the thing. Some of the angriest people passively express their anger. They're not the loud and brash door-slamming types. Their anger is subtle. It's passive. It's quiet. It's a quiet fuel that drives their internal vows and keeps all their relationships at arm's length. So they withhold instead of going on the attack. Passive anger. They're quiet instead of loud. Passively anger. They stir trouble behind the scenes instead of a straight-up confrontation. And in a tense world like the one we live in, the self will default into anger when things don't go the way we want them to go. We will end up lashing out, whether it be passively or aggressively. We'll lash out at our kids, lash out at our spouse, at our coworkers, at the faceless opponent on social media, at politicians. And as Christians who are living in a post-Christian culture, we are often tempted to think anger is the appropriate response to all the moral decline and to all the moral chaos. This is where we come along with this ridiculous phrase called righteous anger. This is mislabeled. As righteous anger. And so righteous anger flies under the radar of what we perceive as naughty or wrong. Because it is allegedly righteous. Jesus started the ethical part of his Sermon on the Mount by addressing the destructive power of anger and the destructive power of retaliation. And he did this because he was really smart. And he knew if anger was unleashed, then all sorts of chaos would flow from it. And I think we are seeing his wisdom unfold right in front of us every time we click on Apple News and read one more horrific story of anger out of control. And we must resist this temptation to passively or aggressively default to anger. So back to the picture. And just imagine in this case, the temptation is to use anger, to respond with anger in order to get what we want, in order to retaliate against someone who has hurt us. Tempted to get angry in whatever way we get angry in order to regain control. The temptation when things don't go right, when someone attacks us, when someone says something, when we look at our social media or someone else's and we read something and we can hardly resist the urge, so we have to go in and lob a grenade and we don't feel so bad about it because after all, it's in the anonymity behind the protection of a screen and it really doesn't do that much damage. Or we're in a relationship and we are one of the passively angry types and so we withhold ourselves and we keep others at arm's length, we retreat, we hide And we don't think much of it because at least we're not slamming doors or punching walls. The temptation to use anger. James 1 verse 20, the scripture we can lean into, simply says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Third temptation is religiosity. This is the self that is content to look the part of a religious person. 
Talk the part. Avoid the naughty things. Speak out against this sin or that sin committed by this person or this group or that person or that group. Polishing up the outside so it looks all righteous and it looks all good and it looks neat and tidy, but the inside is full of critiques and complaints and comparisons and condemnations and gossip and underhanded moves to manipulate and get what we want. If we identify as a follower of Jesus, then we are constantly tempted by religiosity. And we always will be. It's one of the hazards of being a Christian. The hazard is, the temptation is to look and sound the part. Say the right words. Have a Bible verse for everything. All the while, inside, in the heart, beneath the surface, in the inner being, there's a self-orientation. And it manifests in all sorts of ugly ways. I've heard people say things around here once in a while. They'll say, why do we always talk about spiritual formation at Oak Hills? When are we going to get on to something else? And talk about something else. Here's the answer. It's a good question, but here's the answer. Because the history of Christianity is littered with stories of people who substituted religion for authentic devotion to Christ. And they replaced the priority of spiritual transformation with things like doctrinal purity and theological precision and external conformity to a bunch of do's and don'ts. And along the way, the gospel was lost. And in its place came a set of beliefs that filled people's heads but did very little to change people's hearts. And that's why we'll always be very close to bringing spiritual formation into the conversation. This is always a temptation around religion. The temptation is to keep it all out here at arm's length so that religion and devotion to God becomes a brain game. In other words, religion becomes a head game. It's what I think. I agree there was a Jesus and he went to the cross and he died for my sins. And because I acknowledge that and agree with that, I'm a Christian. But it's all out here. It's all in the head and it doesn't change us. So back to our picture. This is an interesting one to think about. Here's the temptation. The temptation is just be religious. Believe the right things. That's the temptation. Keep it all at the surface. Get it all into your head. The temptation is to look the part and talk the part. The temptation is to point out the failings of others and the flaws of others. To become an expert at other people's sins and failings and hide behind Bible verses and religiosity. It's imperative as people who identify as followers of Christ, to resist the temptation of religiosity and let the Spirit of God down into us. So the verse here is Matthew 7, 3. It's a marvelous scripture to lean into when tempted by religiosity. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Last temptation is the, te- is, is the temptation to preoccupation. Here's what this means. We are tempted in this busy, fast-paced, hectic, never-ending culture. We are tempted to live with our head down, to just grind out a career, to take care of our 401k, to put blinders on and think of our life and our family advancing up the ladder, making more money, 
saving more money, building for the future, upgrading the house, getting more equity, blah, 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 blah. And all the while the blinders are on and we're doing our life and we're living our life. None of those things being bad, but the blinders will cause us to miss our calling as missionaries and ministers right where we are with the people God has put around us. So we go to work or we go to school, we live in a neighborhood, we go to the grocery store, we stand in those lines with little thought at all about God's call on each of us to be his missionaries right where we are or to be his ministers right where we are. And we're preoccupied with the chaos and the busyness and the building of our own empire so that we don't live as a missionary, we don't live as a minister. We are blinded to how many people in the world have no concept of God and how many people in the world all around us are hurting because life is falling apart, but we can't see and we can't hear because we've got blinders over our eyes and we've got earplugs in our ears. We're too busy, preoccupied. We get lost in our own life's pursuits. So the verse here is the verse that Jesus said. His disciples come back. He's been talking to the Samaritan woman. And the disciples come back and he says to them, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. So in the picture, the temptation is get lost in your own life's pursuits. Be busy. So busy. That busy becomes your identity tag. Get so busy, you don't have time for anything else. Get so busy that you don't even see the people around you and what God is up to in them, how he's stirring and how he's moving. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful and thankful and in awe of the power of your truth and we are especially grateful and thankful for the wonder of your grace that because you walked in shoes on this planet you are a merciful high priest full of grace because you know how difficult it can be you know the temptations and the trials. And so I pray this week as we venture out into this world to be salt and light, that we might be attentive to your voice and attentive to the temptations that pull us off of your way and onto our own way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. Actually, I believe there's some food in the back, hurry up and you can be first in line. And uh, But thanks for being here and may the grace and the peace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks for coming. Looks like 5,000 miles broke the camel.